Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 251 of the pandemic, and also just 62 days until President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris take office. A very wonderful and special show for you today with Nina Renata Aaron, whose book, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, is out right now. This is a conversation that is very different than our typical interview. You have two people that have spent a lifetime dealing with codependency and addiction and recovery, talking about that for an hour. If you want to know about Nina's life, you can read the memoir. If you want to hear a conversation about addiction, recovery, trauma, and all of that, stick around. Nina is a writer and editor living in Oakland. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Rumpus, Jezebel, the Millions, and all over the place. And we will get to all of that in just a few minutes. But we have a little business to cover here at the start. As you know, we do two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday. There's two things you can do to help us out. Leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. We also host a monthly happy hour. You can find out all the details about that at theridersjam.com. We have some exciting changes coming to that, so keep on checking back. While you're there, you can buy the books of anybody who's been on the program by clicking on that little bookshop link there. When you do that, you not only support local and independent bookstores across the country, but we get a little scratch back, helps Max get the good dog food. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter. There's book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings around the web. And finally, you can support the entire Solid Listen network by clicking on that Patreon button. For just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Now, I told you all, this is a little different than our normal jam episode. We are not going to go through Nina's life. We don't start at the beginning, walk our way through discover things along the way. And part of the reason is that I hosted a happy hour with Nina and Sarah Casbier about six weeks ago. So I've already read her book, which is different than what I normally do. And I had that happy hour with those two women because they wrote really interesting, and I thought, um, companion memoirs. Sarah's book is a series of essays about her life after a sexual assault when she was young, and it really chronicles the next 20 years, sort of the aftermath of that happening. And Nina's book is about a codependent relationship that she had that lasted 15, 20 years and destroyed her life as she's been in and out of recovery, as she's been in Al-Anon, Alcoholics Anonymous, trying to both get away from the destructive patterns of alcoholism, but also the sort of codependent relationships that develop when you grow up around alcohol. And I had them together on that happy hour because, as I told them, Nina's story is really the end is the beginning. Like, she takes us through this destructive relationship, and her book ends at the beginning of her life. And Sarah's book really picks up after this destructive event happens and talks about what happens next. And obviously they're not related. They're not companion in the sense that they tell the same story. But it was really interesting to walk through the experiences of these two writers as they were exploring the pain and damage that happened. One from how it began and one from how it happened after. And so when I read Nina's book, having been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for most of my adult life, I thought, well, I wanted to really have a personal conversation with her about my life and about what I've been through and about her life and what she's been through because you can find her story in her book. There was no reason for us to have an interview where we walked through all that stuff. But I did think it was important for us to talk about the 
parts of addiction, the parts of recovery, the parts of AA, parts of the rooms, parts of the world that you sort of inhabit as yourself as you try to navigate through the world. Because I've been in trauma therapy for about four years, and after 25 or 30 years in AA, that trauma therapy has fundamentally altered my life in a way that those rooms never did, although the rooms were very important, and I would not be here had the rooms not been there. And Nina also has an interesting relationship with the rooms of both AA and Al-Anon for different reasons, but also some of the same. And there are just very few times in public life where you have two people who have gone through these things having a frank discussion about what that looks like. I think in the midst of the pandemic, after this election season, with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, it was important to release the episode now and to have the conversation that we did. So in the grand scheme of things, the least literary literary podcast that you are listening to right now will be even least literary this episode because we don't talk much about her book. We don't talk much about how she got there. But we talk a lot about addiction and recovery, which is the lens through which both of us, at least right now, see our writing. I've seen that in my writing for 30 years. And her book is really about that. And Sarah's book, obviously different. It's not about alcoholism and things like that. But it is about trauma. And so I guess there's two things that I would say. One, stick around for this episode because it is unlike anything we've ever done. And then I would encourage you to go get Nina's book, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, and Sarah's book, A Woman, A Plan, An Outline of a Man, because they're so good and they're so important. And I think particularly at this juncture where we are in the pandemic and with the holidays coming up, they make for a really good read. So thanks for indulging us as we veer off the path a little bit, although it's my show, so I will veer on the path that I would like to go. But I hope that you get something out of it. I hope to hear from people. And I'm excited to bring you this conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Nina Renata Aaron. Can I swear? I can, right? Okay. Yes. I don't know if I can not if I want to, but um, <laughs> I, the sort of like unkind version is people have said they feel sort of sorry for me that I was like socialized in this way in a sort of maybe normative, traditionally gendered yeah. way and that they're like, I don't relate to this kind of doormat femininity. And I'm always like, that's so great. I mean, I think it's so great to hear that maybe people can escape this fate. And I do know, I mean, I have women in my life who yeah. sort of don't know what I'm talking about because they either were raised differently or are constitutionally different than I am. Yeah. It's which also, I say, fabulous. That's great. It, and you don't come off as that way. Like having talked to you and then like you can tell you're on the other side of the journey or at least like, not maybe not on the other side, sure. but you're past the 50 yard line. Oh, I'm on the other side. I yeah. have to believe I am. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and that, and so reading the character of you in the book and then also knowing who you are now, it's like, ah, that it must for you feel like you're almost writing about a person that doesn't exist. Like you're writing about somebody else. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, um, someone said something to me, like, I just want to shake that, that person in your book. And I was like, I want to shake her too, because I don't, you know, I mean, I have obviously like a visceral memory of all of that, but I do feel that it is safely in the past. Thank God. But yeah. lots of those things I'm still working out, but I always have had to deal with the fact that I think I, I don't know, cultivated a kind of like tough girl persona, speaking of persona <laughs> and I, and you know, underneath that I was actually you know totally not that I, I can sort of come across as that chick but that's not really how I was now I think I finally caught up to it. I'm like that yeah, now the whole package is tough girl it's good it is and it's you know it is I think any of us that have gone through trauma and change you're sort of always translating like I feel like I'm on not not that I'm on the other side, but like four years into trauma therapy, I feel more in control of things that I did mm -hmm. not feel in control of. But if I don't pay attention to it, I immediately revert into this old thing. Like it is, it's it is chronic. It is not curable. Yep, totally, totally. And I think that's difficult for people 
to get their head around. I think so too. But I know exactly what you mean about having a little bit more control because I think the best sort of definition of alcoholism that I ever heard was that um, it's, it's not that you have a certain number of drinks or that you have certain kinds of habits necessarily. It's that when you drink, you have no idea what's going to happen. Like you might, you know what I mean? You might have one and go home. You might wake up in another state, you know, you just don't know. And I think that way about all my sort of stuff that's wrong with me. It's like when I'm taking care of myself, I just know better what's going to happen, how things are going to land, how I'm going to use my tools to respond to them. And when I'm not well, you know, in regard to drugs, alcohol, codependency, when I'm not doing well, I just like don't know what's going to happen. I have no control. Yeah. And so when you're taking care of yourself, you do get to have, you know, of course, everything's still out of our control, but you have more control over how you, what you bring to a situation. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And, you know, I have been in and out of, before trauma therapy, I had been in and out of AA for 25 years. I mean, I've, I've had I'm issues. so interested in that. Well, that mo- mostly like the in and out part. How was that for you? Did you get, did you feel stigmatized for being in and out? I mean, I come from Appalachia. So like, mm-hmm. there's a lot, like, there's a long history of this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. try, like, weirdly, looking and sounding like me and trying to be better. The bar is very low for what people are like, <laughs> hey, like you're trying to, you know what I mean? You're trying to be a better person. So there wasn't a stigma. It was really like, oh, this kind of person who we're not used to being self-aware about anything is trying. Wow. And so, yeah. you know, like that's, but what the problem was for me was, you know, when I started seeing my therapist, she said, Look, you know, I'd been sober for like nine years that time and she was like how do you feel and I'm like I still feel like I'm hanging on the side of a cliff and I'm white knuckling every moment of the day and she's like yeah because you you're just not drinking you haven't fixed anything yeah Uh, and that was when I really got into the cognitive behavioral therapy and really like started digging into several of my friends who do this professionally they're like here's the latest thinking on recovery and rehab like some people have actual alcohol problems most of you are fucked up and have just never dealt with that stuff. Yep. And when you do that, you, you know, it's, I'm in that trauma therapy that they give to, um, it was developed in the military to deal uh-huh. with PTSD, right? You know, it's EMDR. Yep. It changed my whole life. It cha- like uh-huh. all of those things that would come pouring out that I, as I told folks, I'd either, you know, fuck, fight or drink. Like that was what I did. Like those were the three outlets. And now I'm like, oh, I can just do some tapping and meditation, bring that down. And then, if I have a drink, it's because I want to drink and not because I've it's caught on so fire. Rad. One of my best friends is a practitioner of EMDR. I mean, that's what she does. And she's a trauma therapist. And I just saw her this weekend. We were talking all about it. It's so life changing. I mean, it's yeah. so cool. That's amazing. So did you feel like, I mean, I'm always really interested in people who leave the recovery community of AA because I feel like, um, I mean, of course, it's like it's every alcoholic's fantasy. But I'm like, tell me how you did that and how I can go back to drinking in moderation, which I have to say, I'm not sure is ever going to be possible for me. But I'm really curious about people who are able to successfully transition to like a different way of thinking about. Yeah, you know, the stigma comes with that. Yes. Right. And like, rightfully so. When I started drinking again, like I did it in consultation with my therapist. I told the people in my life, like it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't the slip, right. Where you're like, where'd Brad go? Like, I haven't seen him in a week. (laughs) Like, well, let's go look under the bridges and the ditches first and we'll see. I told everybody like, this is going to be the weirdest episode because I rarely read, I never read books before. And I know you told me that and you've already read mine. I read yours for the happy hour. And so I was like, oh, this will be interesting because we will be talking about things in the book, I think, just because. What if we have like a terrible, what if, what if you find out that you can't do the podcast this way? I mean, we'll find out we're doing it right now. So (laughs) it seems to be going well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it is interesting because of the recovery stuff and the Al-Anon stuff and, and that. Because are you in AA or are you in Al-Anon? both or yes i'm yeah. a double winner yeah. which is That's not that which i feel like is not that uncommon no and in fact i mean i usually one starts i mean i know a lot of people who started by getting sober and then they realize that they're still like 
hugely fucked up and it's Al-Anon stuff. And I started in Al-Anon as a teenager and then was kind of in and out of Al-Anon for 20 years. And then, you know, realized like, if I really want this to work, I probably have to stop drinking and doing drugs. Um, and I was right. And so then it's sort of like, I do think they really do, you know, they work best in concert and most alcoholics have some of that like martyry woe is me shit that they could stand to work on in Al-Anon. So I think it, I think they work really well together. That said, I do, I, there are ways in which I'm alienated by the culture of AA and for this book having like, I mean, I really got into the history of these programs and the traditions out of which they grew and their religiosity, their masculinism, all of these things about them that are like not my fave, you know? So I often, I'm sort of um, not like in, I don't know, in a way I'm not like an orthodox member of either group and I'm kind of critical. And there are definitely people in my midst who like don't welcome that energy because I think that these programs stay alive in part through the loyalty of members and they are life-saving. I really believe that they are really life-changing and life-sustaining and life-affirming and life-saving for a lot of people, certainly not everyone. And I think there ought to be room for debate, critique, but that's not always welcome from this, from the people in recovery who I know, because they're kind of like, you know, it's like talking about someone's church. I was just going to say, there's no Bible critique group in the church. <laughs> like, I mean, literally, well that, like, yeah, I mean, well put, true, yes. right? Like, and, and having been in and out of those rooms, I still get calls. And I, you know, when I, um, throughout my life, when I had partners, I would tell them, I'm going to get calls once a week at all hours of the day from somebody who I don't know, because I was very public and I had, I was, you know, I was a public writer. I did all this stuff and I very, I talked about this stuff and I'm like, somebody will need something and there'll be calls at two in the morning and I won't know. And I'll be, go, I'll be in the room for two hours talking to him because mm-hmm. it's one, it's what you do. And I get less of those now that I'm not in the program, but I still get the calls like, yep. Um, and so I'm grateful that I had the, that experience because I do understand and lived it and, you know, been to hundreds, thousands of meetings. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it, my therapist very quickly was like, oh, you've never dealt with any of this stuff. Right. Yeah. And so now my conversations that I have with people are very much like AA is good. And if it keeps you not drinking, fuck it, like stay. Right. But that's not the end of the journey. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I do think the people who, some of the people I know who have tried to sort of use AA as free therapy or because of their own situation, don't have the resources to access other types, other modalities of therapy, you know, there, they are sometimes at a disadvantage because it is, it is a kind of one size fits all model in some ways. And I think in the interactions with other recovering people, you can get a lot of texture, different kinds of advice, different viewpoints. And, you know, a lot of people can get some really good help in there, but I had a couple early experiences with like, you know, kind of meh sponsors that I was just like, I just, at some point I felt so guilty because I was like, well, they're doing, they're really like, you know, fulfilling their commitment by helping me. And then eventually I would just be like, I am not getting anything out of this. It feels like just a job, like another person for me to call, but I'm not, I like, wasn't, I'm not, it wasn't always like doing its magical thing. And so I don't know. I still struggle with that. I'm really, um, I really think it's an amazing program and I think it can be like miraculous and I do feel like uh sobriety the way I have practiced it and Alan on the way I've practiced it or whatever codependency recovery has transformed my life in such a way that you know I mean it's pretty fucking awesome so it's you know I just think there's still there for me like I can never shut up and I want to debate about everything and I want to learn the history of everything and talk about how patriarchal everything is and so I'm like (laughs) I'm like not the perfect AA student because I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just always nitpicking the literature yeah. and rolling my eyes. And You're like Bill was kind of a dick. Yeah, oh my <laughs> God. And that's the other thing. Like then I was researching Bill and Lois and their love affair because I was writing about my codependent relationship. And once I, you know, I mean, Bill was a total philanderer and had this long affair with this woman who was cut in for the like to you know for the proceeds of the the 
the royalties of the big book. And that I had to like take a walk. And <laughs> I was kind of like, and then I was like, you know, all of these things made a different kind of sense to me. Like in, in the literature, they're kind of like, you know, I mean, of course we've had affairs. That's what alcoholics do. We don't need to uncover every stone. We don't need to. And then I was kind of like, oh, that was just Bill covering his. <laughs> <laughs> like Scientology is not real. Holy. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of like had my, I've had my little losses of innocence with the program, but I do also respect it a lot. And it's like, you know, I'm just doing so much better that I'm like, whatever that is, I don't fucking know, but it's a combination yeah. of things and it works. And, you know, that's I'll never say a bad word about the program just because if it gets if it gets you to that point where you can get out from underneath that terrible blackness that you live under when you have it like, you know, I mean, it's funny. My first real sponsor, you know, when I went in uh, like a decade ago is like a Trump right wing whatever, but he had been a professional baseball player very briefly. And so we connected and I was like, you know, look we wouldn't be friends outside of that relationship, Mm -hmm. but he fucking dragged me out of the darkness. And I was like, so in these rooms, I can forgive. We're not going to talk about that stuff because I need to stay out of that. And it's really, you know, it is a complicated relationship and I'm sure it's, you know, completely different for, for women or or different and different in a different Mm -hmm. way, the same in a different way. Uh, but that you know, it was really hard for me to sort of reconcile. Like, yeah, I can't really hate this guy because I would very likely be dead without him. And like, yeah. like, what do you do with that? Total, well, especially right now, like I feel the same way about certain people I've encountered in the rooms. But like living in this moment, I I don't know that I seek to. I mean, maybe that's like really divisive and a terrible thing to say. But I, it's like I don't really want to have experiences with people who are Trump supporters where we like, you know, discover our shared humanity. Like, of course we're all human and those people should wake the fuck up. Sorry. But like, yeah. And so I'm kind of like, I don't know, do I want to be dwelling in spaces like that are quasi religious or religion adjacent where we're supposed to pretend that all of this heinous shit is not happening. Cause I don't really aspire to that more and more. I like don't have any time for that. Right. But, I mean, I go to AA in Oakland, California, so I'm not exactly dealing with Trump supporters yeah. there. And see, I was not right. Like I was in Appalachia, so like, what's what was the what was the choice? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but one of the things you were talking about, uh, sort of, I get the the thing that always that didn't chaff me, but like that I just thought this is not giving me what I needed that EMDR did, which is tools, right? Like. AA is like a, a lifeline. AA is somebody throwing the thing off the boat so that you don't drown. But then they drive away and you're like, well, I'm just here not drowning now. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> I need some swim lessons and maybe a boat. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think we all have like so much. I mean, by the time we get in there, which is, you know, I mean, yeah. usually things are grim. It's even consider going there, you know? <laughs> and so I think it's just things are so complicated by that stage of adulthood. I mean, maybe there are, maybe the tools feel different for people who I think there are people I've met who have been really fortunate to get sober young. And those, you know, a is kind of like a lens. It's a way of thinking that they applied so early that it has sort of been applied to all of their adult decisions. And for people like me, it's just not that way. Like I'm kind of just like this amalgam of, yeah. 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 And, you know, there is one of the things that I have come to embrace about myself, which I think you probably do too, not about me, but about you, is that (laughs) there is, since we don't know each other, there is a certain amount of chaotic neutral that is in me that for a long time I felt guilt about because I didn't conform to the thing that I was supposed to be, right? Like, my life is a little bit chaotic and like I do shit that doesn't fit into boxes that kind of box, like it almost fits, but not quite. And I spent my life trying to get into that box instead of going like, you know, brother, (laughs) you're just, you know, you're a little much. (laughs) (laughs) But have you had that experience of like, it? it, it, Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I do think that, um, yeah, for a while I thought that, you know, recovery is not the right word, but I thought that like getting happier or getting better 
would make me fit better into those boxes. And then I realized actually, no, it's just getting okay with not fitting. You know, it's like more about establishing a more comfort with being exactly as I am, you know, yeah. and now I like that person and I can accept that like, yeah, get things are pretty chaotic. Life is chaotic. People for whom life is not chaotic. I'm like in awe of those people, but I, are I, you? I, can't, I, I can't relate to it at all, but I am kind of like, I wonder I'm sort of suspicious of anybody, yes. you know, like, I don't that's know. That's why I was I like, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's the right word. I think you are skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah. Surely uh, there must be some people who just like, I don't know, feel like they have it figured out or they keep it very simple. Yeah. I mean, I think those people, I think those people have to conform to a life and then yeah. cognitive dissonance kicks in and they're like, this is the right life. Yes. And so yeah. there's a lack of questioning about that life. Yeah, I don't envy that. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, it's, I've said on the show many, many times that you have two decisions about your life, which is you take new input in and you change the way you feel and act and your life gets bigger and it gets harder because now you're getting a lot of stuff that doesn't align with who you thought you were and all that stuff. And for white people in particular, that's as we're seeing, and for white men, it, that's really hard, right? Because you lose some things that you didn't earn, but mm-hmm. you gain new things that you didn't know were there. Or you do this other well thing, put. or you do this other thing where you push everything away. But the forces are gonna, they're gonna push you down, and your life will be very, very small. Mm-hmm. And there'll be that angst that you don't know about that is there. And I think those are the people that are quote, quote, happy because they're pushing, <laughs> because they're pushing everything that would be different away. They're push- I thought you were going to say those are the people who are voting for Trump. <laughs> I was like, wow, way to bring it all full circle. <laughs> well, they might be, but I mean, I also know. No, there are plenty of people across the board doing yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. talked to enough women who have told me and, 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 and black folks who have said like my lefty folks are sometimes the hardest people to oh. convince that like they do terrible shit. I have some of those in my life. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So that's why I'm always reticent to be like, they're Republicans. I'm like, no, there's a oh, lot of God. people Come that to are... the Bay Area. No, yeah. you'll change your tune. Yeah. I lived in Berkeley for five years. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. so you know. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I do. And yeah. it's, it's funny. I've told people that was the, the happiest I've ever been was when I left there because there wasn't a day that went, I stopped wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots. There wasn't a day that went by that somebody didn't ask me what part of the South I was from because of how I sounded. I had somebody once tell me in Berkeley, I've never heard anybody who sounds like you say smart stuff like that. Oh. And I thought, okay. Oh my God, really? <laughs> oh yeah. 
Yeah, the only place my girlfriend at the time was African American. The only place I was ever refused seating was in Berkeley. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is terrible. It's not funny, but Berkeley, I remember when I was moving across the country with my now ex-husband and he was like and I we were going to Berkeley so that I could do school and he had gone to school there and and um I was like I think Berkeley's going to be great for me. I'm kind of like a weird like Jewish hippie and you know, it's going to be like a crunchy place. I'm going to like bake bread. And he was like, I don't think you really understand <laughs> Berkeley. I don't think you're going to feel that way about it. I was like, what? Watch me. Like it's, you know, all this cool free speech movement and all this cool hippie shit has yeah. happened there. But within like two months, I said to him, this is a very mean place. Like there is anger coursing through this place, yeah. which I just, I wasn't prepared for. I don't feel that way about Oakland really at all. It's like, it's a Berkeley. It's a, yeah. There's now a certain, there's a certain like sort of boomer demographic of um, yeah. Berkeley residents that is like quite terrifyingly angry, and not like in a sound. I don't mean like in a political way. I mean about like your shopping cart touching theirs or like. Yeah. It's really it's hardcore. It is the you know, and Oakland is Oakland because there's something like 120 languages spoken in the Oakland public school system. Uh, I wrote for the black newspaper there uh, for a year. And so I spent a lot of time like running around interviewing people and stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, this is a city. I mean, this yeah, is totally. like a little New York, right? Like there's just so many different, if you drive in the, in a certain part of town, you're like all the street signs are in Chinese. Uh -huh. Like there's no English. They're yeah. like, look, you've just come here. So figure out what that sign means, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that there's a certain, um, you know, shared experience of the respect of culture just because, I mean, respect in the sense that like, people are going to live their culture. Whereas mm -hmm. Berkeley, it is, here's the way we live here. Yeah, and if you really don't. Intense. <laughs> yeah. So when I, when did you get to Berkeley? I got to Berkeley in 2007. Oh, uh, so we missed each other. So I got there in 98 when they, oh, wow. when they put in the parking meters. Uh-huh. They hadn't existed until then. And the day they went up, a bunch of people went around with chainsaws and chopped every parking meter tile. <laughs> so for the five years I lived there, th they never replaced them because I'm guessing it cost several million dollars and they were like, well, this is not going to work. And so for the five wow. years I lived there, I never had to pay street parking because they had cut down. And I thought that is both one awesome, right? Because, yep. um, you know, that poor people that live there shouldn't have to pay to park on the street. But also that's a little... You know, that's a little Aggro. vigilante for me. Yeah, like, <laughs> to do that, you have to be of a certain mentality. And I'm that's like, pretty rad. I didn't even know that happened. I'm going to have to look that up. And oh I actually God. lived that, you know, I lived in San Francisco around that time and was in Berkeley a couple of times, but, um, but I didn't know that that happened then. I lived so, there just for the, for a year. So w when did you get to California? 1997. Fall oh, 97. shit. Yeah. So there's a really good chance that we were probably in the same place totally. at the yeah. same time because I was also running around with fucking crazy people. <laughs> well, you know, I was because you read my book. I read the book. Yeah. yeah. And so I literally, as I was reading it, I'm like, oh my God, like, I just, like, I, I just know we were in the same place at I'm some sure. point. Like, I'm sure. Way too late at night. <laughs> yeah, and it was really cool then. I mean, San Francisco was like, I, I, it's not really how I feel about it anymore, even though it's still a beautiful city. Yeah. But it was... Um, the mission was still the mission. Really cool place then, yeah. Yeah, you know, hate hadn't been transformed yet. Uh, yeah. Like, I go back, you know, I haven't been there in a while, but the mission today is like... Yeah, it's unrecognizable. Like that was where we hung out, man. Like you could go to oh, bars yeah. and drink like PBR for you know two bucks. Um, unironically, so you know. Like, yep. Yeah. I, you weren't being a hipster. You were just like, oh no, shit. Like this a little. I shit know. Story. That was a great. That was a really great time to be there. I feel lucky that I like had a cheap apartment in the Mission. Yeah. Which will never be a thing again. <laughs> I, I mean, paid, maybe now after COVID. Who knows? I paid five hundred and sixty bucks for my place in Berkeley. Yeah, I know. We were just talking about that. The girlfriends and I who lived there together, our rent was four sixty five a piece. 
for a three-bedroom apartment mission yeah. on 14th Street. I mean, it's wild to think about now. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, it is. And, like, I, the Lucky 13 was, like, my favorite bar. Totally. Yeah, that's why I'm like, I know we've ended up in the same place. Because... Oh, for sure. Yeah, I lived right right near there. It's yeah. funny. It's also just, like, kind. Of, I'm kind of enjoying getting old enough to say shit. Like, my rent used to be $80. Like, I remember when I was growing up, the people who were always like, we lived on the Lower East Side when it was the most, you know, whatever, for $25 a month. And now I'm like, oh, my God. I've started doing that all the time. I was just in Williamsburg. Brooklyn, where I also lived for years, um, sort of now it's like a roofless mall. And I was just there yesterday and I was like, I just allowed myself for a few minutes to just do do that rant. Like, what are all these places? This didn't used to be here. And I used to pay X number of dollars for this fabulous, like, you know, raw loft space. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, wow, I really sound like an asshole. But I just leaned in to it. For, it's kind of satisfying to be like, you know, old enough to have done some cool stuff. Well, and that, you know, it's why I knew this interview was going to be different. Like once I read the book and I was like, okay, we have, we at least ran in the same circles, yeah. uh, which is always interesting to me, but it was the AA stuff and like sort of that um, running around in that creative time where you could just like the people that I was friends with were like just doing weird shit. And like most of them had jot like, I worked at Wired, so, like, I was at graduate school. So, like, most of them were doing actual real stuff. But I also had a bunch of friends and people that I came across that were just, it was such a weird and wild time then. Because mm-hmm. the dot-com thing was just kind of happening. Everybody, it felt like, in that area, in the Bay Area, is under 30. Mm-hmm. Nobody gave a fuck about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, like, it's hard to explain that to people that didn't live through it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really, really fun time but did you end up staying in the bay area for a while i left in 2003 and moved back to texas Uh, i quit wired um took my uh, they were laying people off and so i asked to be laid off and i took that severance money and bought a house in austin um awesome yeah which is where i had lived before like that's Mm -hmm. sort of my spiritual Mm -hmm. that's that's my place um although it now has been san franciscoized Mm -hmm. that's what i hear i love austin you, it would be unrecognizable to you now. I guess. Well, you know, my next move, I think, will be to Asheville. I'm here in Asheville is like, that's the place that is like. That's what I hear. And I just, yeah. ha- I have a friend in Oakland who just, she and her <laughs> partner just moved there. Yeah. It's, and if you've never been, it's great. It's like this five point downtown and like each part of the downtown is like really different than the other part. You can get to the mountains and the ocean, like. I think I am actually going to stop there on my way. You know, I've been on this road trip, and I think I am going to stop there on the way back. Yeah, seems like a really cool place. Are you going to move there? uh, You know, I don't know. Like, I love Pittsburgh is actually, have you been to Pittsburgh? Yes, I love Pittsburgh. Yeah, And I always say to people, I could live in Pittsburgh. They're like, no, you couldn't. But I'm like, watch me. I'm going to move to Pittsburgh. It's really cool. It really is. And that's one of the reasons I don't think I will, uh, because we're in the mountains. It's Appalachia. It has, you know, the... Carnegie money, the melon money, and they've pumped all of that into the Appalachian resources and the arts and sciences. Mm-hmm. And so with the three universities here, all that money transforming the sort of world around it, it's like a really nice place to live. Like yeah. you can go to the ballet, you can go to the symphony, you can, it's four and a half hours to New York City, four and a half hours to DC and Baltimore, two hours to Cleveland. Like it just has all of this stuff. And then there's 80 parks that are more than 500 acres within. An and so it's for me, I'm like, well, this is everything, right? Like it, and it's is a, it cheap. It's cheaper I mean, than all the places. Yeah, I, I was like, <laughs> all the places you are, you would come here. Like I'm looking at like three and four bedroom homes for like 220, $230,000 on the upper end. Wow. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you know, like, this was the other thing. Once you get out of the coast, you're like, oh, oh my God, I know. A 400-square-foot thing doesn't cost $1.2 million. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's cool. You should do that. Well, I mean, uh, I'm here. I'm in the process of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, But you can get really a four-bedroom house for $200,000. Um, yeah, like th- if I want to live a little bit outside of the city, like 15 minutes outside of the city, yeah, I can get a four-bedroom for two, 210, 220. 
Um, and one of the things I'm going to do is part of the, I want to buy a house and then I'm going to offer a residency, a writing residency in one of the rooms. That's awesome. Yeah. Where if you don't have a job, it's free, but if you have a job and can sublet your place, it'll be like 250 bucks a month just to like, and then I'm going to like every few months I'll just take off and that person will have the house to themselves. That's so cool. I always, that's one of my like long-time fantasies is getting like an old motel and doing some kind of writing residency situation. It would be so fun. Well, that was part of the therapy. My therapist said, what do you want your life to be? And I was like, well, this, but it's insane. And she's like, why? And I was like, yeah, why is that? Yeah, why? Why do I think that's crazy? Because I was making fucking zines when I was, you know, 17 and like being. Yeah. (laughs) This feels like a sound investment. <laughs> I love this idea, though. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. And, like, I love writers. And I think probably you, as you, you know, you've written this thing. And I want to talk about it. I never talk about the books. But one of the things that we talked about during the happy hour was that the book is, your story is a, because there's two stories in this book. There's your story, and then there's this sort of cultural history of Al-Anon and AA. And you told me there was like 300 pages that didn't go into the book. I mean, I just did too much research, which was probably, I don't know, I'd like to believe it like informed my, the sensibility of the book or something. I don't know. It might've just been like wasted time, but I wanted to read all that stuff. And I ended up, yeah, writing a lot of history that just didn't really have a place in the book or would have sort of yanked the reader out of the more, you know, dramatic, lusty, other part that was I think probably more exciting to read um but yeah I didn't I did do like quite a bit of research and yeah we were talking at the happy hour I was saying it was important to me to do that because I did really sort of want to give this other arc alongside my story and not just be writing my own story but I don't know I I I mean one of the things you had said was like you don't get to just have my story Right, like yeah, you I'm have to do like a little bit of homework here. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting. I mean, I, I, I think I either tweeted you or whatever. I when I when I got to that first part, I'm like, ah, fuck, this book is not what I thought it was going to be. Like you, dirty bastard, like, <laughs> you have hoodwinked us all with yeah. this. Um, was that the plan? Like, is that like? Kind and why of. do you think you felt the? Need, why do you think that you felt the need for people to do the homework? Well, I mean, I think. There's probably one answer to that question, which is about my sort of need to prove myself as someone who didn't just have these unsavory experiences and was like on this crash course of my life, but also contextualized the whole thing, studied up on why I was doing these things, understood, you know, could could see my own behavior uh, in some along some other spectrum that wasn't just this like individual pathology. And in a way, I think that was very healing for me because I, um, I ended up being able to, I mean, I, and I don't mean that I let myself off the hook. I've done a lot of work to be really, you know, on rigorous honesty and all the things we do in the program and all the things I've done in therapy over the years. Um, you know, I want to be really accountable and for the, my actions. And at the same time, it has always been throughout my life really, um, really useful for me to understand that like, it's not like I alone am experiencing this, these things. I can see them as part of, you know, a larger, usually women's history or in the case of other, you know, parts of my identity, other histories, but, but it, it's, it really helped me to realize I was not the first woman to have like weirdly fallen in love with somebody who was like a train wreck and tried to save them and believe I could save them and, you know, sacrifice myself in all these ways and acted really like resentful and angry and all these other ways. Like that's really a thing. And it's like so many things we experience, it has a long storied history. So I just, it was kind of probably a way of me situating my own story, but it was also like, I think women's memoirs since the, you know, personal essay boom. And I think that there are a lot of women whose stories are exploited. Like they're like, Oh, you had these particular problems or were, you know, 
subject to this particular kind of violence, like we'll pay you cheaply for your the tawdriest version of your story imaginable, slap it together and sell it. And um, I really wanted to like write something thoughtful that sort of offered more than just, you know, I mean, I hope that even the parts that are just about my life and relationship are, you know, robust in one way or another, but I wanted to make sure that, um, to me, it was really important that it be sort of like a serious undertaking, Yeah, which is not to say it's not serious to just write your own story without these other facets. But the books that I gravitate toward almost always are these weird hybrid monsters of like some theory, some history, some, you know, some of everything. And I have always loved those types of memoirs. And I've been thrilled that in the past 10 years or so, they're sort of more and more. It's kind of like in order to understand your story, you can't just be telling your own story. And so I sort of made that explicit in this book by reaching back pretty far. It also felt like because you made it a point that you didn't finish your your post undergraduate studies mm-hmm. and so as I was reading the book and you know getting through that and we we didn't obviously go through your life today because if you read the book you'll go through her life so I felt like well, well if we're gonna do this we're actually gonna go through what the book is about but it also felt like uh fuck you I didn't get that degree <laughs> but I can do this totally stuff. yeah totally yeah. I mean it's funny I wouldn't have thought that as I was writing and there are ways in which like that that training has kind of just like infected the way I yeah. see the world and read and write and whatever. But I'm sure it was also, <laughs> I'm sure like after, once I read the book later, I was kind of like, there's a little bit of proving myself. Yeah. Like yeah. I didn't need the PhD. I still could pull this off. Kind of. yeah. but, no, which is, I mean, it's not an academic book at all. At but, all. But I, it I is a, if I could actually pull off a truly academic book, but, but it was a little bit of like a, yeah. I'm yeah. Sure. I, it's, you know, we talked about this at the happy hour, I think. I don't know if it, Sarah and I were talking about it. You may not have been on before, but I have this weird issue when I do these interviews because these interviews are oftentimes deeply, I mean, we're talking about deeply personal stuff. I also then spend time with the books. And so I feel connections to the people that I talk to that are not actually real, right? That are not actually because we've never been in the same space, any of that stuff. And as I was reading the book, I was like, ah, oh, I noticed, I noticed gal. You know, like, because there were were parts of that that resonated with me, right? Like, I went to Berkeley because I was a poor Appalachian kid, and I'm like, I'm going to a top four fucking school. Like, and I showed up there angry, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, even today, people are still talking, like, when we get together, people are just now realizing that anger was like that class rage of like, Mm -hmm. oh, you don't think someone that sounds like me can do this? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here comes the guns (laughs) blazing. Also, um, you know, as before pre-therapy, like when I was doing the drinking, fucking and fighting, everybody, not everybody, but most of the people that I dated were disasters, right? And you, and, mm-hmm. and so when you were talking about like, well, when you're codependent and you date somebody like that, it's because you feel better about yourself. Like at least yep. I'm not that person. Yep. Also yep. can tell yourself the story. I'm helping them. Yep. But Which at least is- I'm not them is a big part of it. I mean, it's really like if you get yourself next to like, a dumpster fire you're like oh i look pretty good yeah. <laughs> like, and, like, i am keeping my shit warm. together yeah and it's kind of warm right like it's <laughs> because in that damage there's a lot of again like i think that i don't know where yours comes from but there is a fucking hotness to that chaos right like and when you get that itchy burning shit Mm-hmm. one of the ways to do that is to fuck it out right and yeah. like what better place to do that than with your dumpster fire yep i know it's funny <laughs> that you say that it is really true and i think that it's part of what's hard is adjusting to a life without that whatever <laughs> that is whatever yeah. that is. but i i mean it, it's a much better life but it's true that there is a reason we do those things it's not it like- is and as you were talking, like, I know you framed it through the lens of women, which is obviously your story and that stuff. But I, just so you know, like, that resonates beyond gender, yes. right? Yes, like, that definitely. is the thing that I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I, because my, literally, my parents would ask, like, why don't we ever meet anybody you're dating? And I would always tell them, like, well, you like, don't they're crazy. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, this will be, you know, this will not be good. Yeah. Uh, and um, I'm also a little embarrassed about them and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. 
Uh, I know, and, and it's been it's been very liberating for me to not to like live without that. That's a lot to manage. That kind of like shame and deciding how you know trying to sort of manage and control the interactions that that person is having with the rest of your life and sort yeah. of like keeping your own private psycho like folia de going at home but then yeah you know wanting certain people to kind of know maybe certain people to be kind of jealous but certain people not to know anything about it and yeah. it's like that was a whole dance for me for years that especially raising kids like I had my like mommy persona and mommy life at the playground where like, I mean, I was like a totally different, not a different person, but I had to obviously, you know, that part of my life was very sanitized and kept as separate as possible from this other. And that sort of the maintenance of these like multiple existences was the most exhausting. I mean, it's just so, I feel like I'm on vacation just having like the one life I have now. (laughs) Like it's all integrated. Everybody knows everything. I'm like, wow, this is easy. Yeah, and it well, yeah, it's easier. But it's easier, yes. I'm guessing that you had like in your moments, and again, we don't know each other, but I, you know, I feel like I fucking know you. I feel like you do, yeah. Yeah, I, like <laughs> I at least know that part, right? Like I know that is that. Um, and my therapist always tells me, like, when you feel this way, it's because you're happy and you don't understand it. That when I get the feeling of like, fuck, I need to just blow this whole thing up. Mm-hmm. She's like, that's when you have to use your tools and remember Mm -hmm. you want to do that because you don't yet believe that you deserve a calm happiness in life. Yep, totally. (laughs) And you don't know how to just sit with it. Like I have, that's a major part of codependency recovery that, you know, that's like one of my favorite slogans is don't just do something, sit there. And I feel like I think about that one all the time because it is so hard for me to just think like, okay, the bills are paid, like, my relationships are stable. My children are happy and fed. And everybody's fine. And like, that's when I'm like, you know, I can like hear the Slayer riffs in the yeah. background. I'm like, what am I going to get into? Like, I feel like I, I need to stir it up somehow or yeah. I, need to, I just had a sober birthday. And I, my response to that was like, I was just thinking like, Okay, like we did this. I think this uh, this is the birthday when I'm like, did I prove I could get my shit together? Yes. Does that mean I deserve to like set the whole thing on fire? Totally. And that's yeah. what I should do. And I had to like spend a week sort of like climbing out of that crazy thought. And that is just how it is for some of us, I think. It's but the it chronic climb out. Yeah. It's the chronicness of it. And I've told people it's not it's the the danger isn't when things are bad. Exactly. I'm like, you know, I know I feel like I am a ninja when things are bad. Like I'm I know you exactly want to what, definitely, yeah. definitely. And there's yeah. nothing that scares me. Literally nothing's going to come at me that I'm like, oh gosh, I'm, this is nothing. No, it's like a sunny, <laughs> quiet day. That's when I start like yeah. getting that crazy feeling. I know it's, it's really wild. It's hard to explain to people that don't. And that's why I thought, that's why I wanted you and Sarah on that same happy hour because, and why I told you like your book I got done and I'm like, ah, the end is the beginning. The end is the beginning. Because Sarah's book is really about the 20 years, like what happens in your life for the next 20 years after after an assault, right? Like, and we don't talk about that, Mm -hmm. which is, well, now I have a partner and, and that impact, that assault impacts my sexual life. Mm -hmm. And now you're in that life. And so now you have to deal with this with me as well. And like, what a powerful fucking set of essays about that stuff that just sort of like brought me, Several yeah, times to the book. Yep. Um, yep. And your book was so interesting because, one, it was the end of the beginning. And I'm interested in part two, which is what happens after that. But mm. the delving into all of the things that, like, that I recognize, that I know millions of other people are going to recognize, right? Like, it is told through your lens, but it is, those experiences are not... The experiences aren't gendered. Your story is, yes. because you framed yes. it within that. Yes. But this is one of those things where, like, if you've ever had any fucking issue in your life, like, yeah. you know, fucking fighting and <laughs> drinking, yeah. like, this book sort of explains that in a way that I thought was, or I think would be helpful because people don't know how Good. to talk I'm about so it when they're in. glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't make sense to the people that it's happening to. I know. It does not. <laughs> and it's like... And then it is also clear once you're on the other side of it. And yet it still exists in your head on those sunny days where you're like, mm, totally. You know, totally. Like. But at least you can sort of like hold it and examine it and know what it is. You're not like 
in it in such a, you know, you can use your tools, which is why all that kind of mindfulness and, you know, that's why it's so great. And I do think it's cool that a, you know, they've been saying meditate since the thirties and it's pretty, it's like, they knew that you have to sort of practice being present. Otherwise you're like flying all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And, but we don't really give, or we, I'm not in the program anymore, but like the tools, to, like the thing that my therapist has helped me with in that EMDR particularly is place the feeling in your body. Like, mm-hmm. what is that? Where is it? And what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. And now when have you felt that before? And suddenly you're able to connect today to the past and it's easier to control the past. Right. So you can use that and bring that forward. Like, Oh, I did get through that. If I yep. just sit here, I will get, and that it sounds so, you know, maybe it doesn't sound stupid, but as a 48 year old man who sounds like this, when I say stuff, I'm oftentimes taken aback. I'm like my 25 year old shit, kick the fucking shit out of me. <laughs> right. But I'm also like yep. the 25 year old me was a fucking cocksucker. Exactly. So maybe don't care what he thinks. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It's, you know, it's, that's why I thought the book was so interesting because I think it's not because I think guys are going to see themselves in the, your, the guy's character, but I think mm-hmm. they're going to understand what you, they're going to see themselves in you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's like a, a I mean, I, I think, I think it's still in the book that I said at the end that, I mean, it's, it was sort of part of the heartbreak of getting out of that situation was realizing how universal it was, how predictable it was, how, you know, and I said, it's like the monkeys writing Shakespeare. If you like leave them <laughs> locked in the room long enough, it's like any alcoholic and codependent could have produced this exact yeah. scripted tragedy. And that's kind of sad because it means that you're not as singular, you know, you don't have that, you can't cling to that terminal uniqueness, as they say, but it also is very liberating. It just like means you played out a thing according to, you know, exactly what's wrong with you. And you can choose not to do that again. You know, you can like change that. But I definitely, I mean, I've known plenty of men who have been the me character in those stories with crazy broads. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, I'm so glad you said that, uh, but it's, I only say that because, you know, I've interviewed so many women who have written memoirs and like you just hear like, and particularly women of color, like you can't just exist in memoir, right? Like you always have to make it something else if you're Mm -hmm. a woman and that men don't read these things. And again, I'm an outlier in this stuff just because I seek out literature that's not, I already know my story. I don't need another, I don't, I've read Gatsby, so I've fucking read them all, right? (laughs) Like, so I sort of got that. Um, And I just think it's important for people to not think like, oh, well, this is one of these um, this is a cliche, but like, this is not a broken girl memoir of mm-hmm. like, like living in your pain. And like, that's not what, that's not what this book is. It really is about that destructive relationship that happens mm-hmm. between, you know, alcoholics, codependent people. Yep. And it's just so fucking interesting. And I, which is a disgusting thing to say about somebody's painful book, but like, it was really interesting. I'm so like, glad. I love to hear that. I mean, it makes me happy. It's yeah, but you know, I mean, those, that dynamic is really fascinating to me. It still is, even though I don't yeah. ever want to participate in it again in that way. Right. But, but it is like, it's, it's pretty wild. It sucks you in. Yeah. And you know, it's, we were talking before, like I had a, a former student who has gone on to do great things, introduced me once as this is the guy you want when you're in a storm. And he's the absolute last person that you want around once the storm has passed. <laughs> and did I that thought, hurt your feelings? Or did no, I told him, I'm like, that, that was pre-therapy. I'm like, that's the most accurate description of me ever. Wow. Right? Wow. Because yeah. like you, I hadn't learned yet how to sit in happiness. Yep. So when happiness was there, I'm like, uh, anybody can match? And I'm like, I, I am the match. You know, like... <laughs> 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 yeah and it's not even just happiness like stability yeah stability stillness it's like yeah yeah oh yeah. i know well i i hear a lot of women memoirists saying that they you know would like to sort of reject the the happy ending because there's this sort of pressure to wrap it all up at the end and and that was something i thought a lot about because i i too did not want to write like the most formulaic memoir where i'm like and then birds were singing and i was happy at the end but I was happy at the end. And like, I couldn't, I was like, I don't want to write the traditional, like sort of, you know, do the traditional template of the addiction memoir where it's like, then I got sober and I was saved, (laughs) but I'm like, but it, 
is true that I, you know, I did like leave this particular variant of suffering behind forever. And I did want to give people that hope who are struggling in those relationships. Like you don't, it, I didn't want to be like, you know, the, this pain persists, like it does not have to, and it doesn't in that way in my life. And I really want people to know that it's a real thing and there's a way out of it, you know? And I will say, I did not read that as a happy ending. <laughs> it's, you're like, your life is still totally fucked up. No, no, but that's no. why I was like, the end is the beginning because yes. what all the ending of that book was, was, and then I found a way to, to not do this anymore. Yes. But it's like the end of a movie. Like, then we don't see all the hard work that comes to being happy, right? Like, yeah. so to me, I was like, that's why I kept, that's why I keep saying the end is the beginning. I'm like, oh, there's a story about how hard it is to be happy. Like, that yes. feels like the next, yes. I mean, not that I'm telling you what to write, but I'm like, that feels like the spiritual next book. <laughs> yeah. I think um, there's definitely a, maybe it's like, um, it's at the end, I think I'm still really heartbroken letting go of this idea of love. So the idea of like what love might look like is definitely yeah. something that's I think about often. And it's, that's the hard work of real life, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. um, you know, my therapist the first day said, what, what do you want your life to be? If you could design your life, what would it look like? And I told her, I've never fucking nobody, I've never had a space to ask that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And so mm. she made me start writing out, like, what would it be? Some of it is, I want a house. I want a writer. Like, I want to be able to travel to New York because I got, like, 50 friends there. Like, and she's like, why aren't you doing any of that? And I'm like, it, it just never crossed my mind that I could. Yep. Like, that's why. <laughs> you know, right? So, like, that was why when I got to the end of your book. I'm like, oh, now we get to ask ourselves, what is love? Who am I? What makes me happy? What is the yeah. thing I want in my life? And do I give myself permission to have those things? Yeah. Well, the first step is giving yourself permission to ask yourself what it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can't give yourself permission until you're like, what does make me happy? Totally. Wow. So would you say on your journey, are you like, do you have those things now? I mean, obviously not every single one, but do you feel you can feel that progress where you're like. Year four, I finally said, I'm going to do number one on the list, which is get the house. The house is the first thing, right? Because that is a permanency. That's a big one. Yeah. And, you know, you know, as somebody who, and, and our, and our growing ups were very different. Like that, my mm-hmm. understanding of just from the book is that they were different, but you have that same sort of thing, which is uh, permanence is terrifying mm-hmm. because of whatever happened in childhood. It's like, I need to be able to get out of here, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. in, a, in a second. So that feels like step one for me is get this house, get the residency set up because then I can go to New York for a month and I got somebody in the house who's a writer who like is that I'm not worried about. Right. Like um, just now beginning to ask myself, like, what do I want a partner to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, like my marriage ended because of the, you know, because I think probably for similar reasons that yours did, which is, you know, uh, if you don't know what makes you happy, yep. you, you are not going to be a good partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm really like that is I'm anxious to make sure that I know what makes me happy so that I'm a better partner. Right. Definitely. So like, yes. like that's again, that's why I was like the end is the beginning. The hardships coming, actually getting out of that is, is difficult and traumatic, but the next thing is sitting with yourself and for people like us, how Ugh. terrifying. Is that? <laughs> I know. I know. That's why, that is why, I mean, of all of the slogans, it's just one day at a time with that kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. That one, I'm like, okay, that one I'm keeping, no matter my relationship to AA. I do yeah. everything like that, one hour at a time. Yeah, in one second at a time, right? Yeah. Really, yeah. like, it, there are days that I feel like the first days of, like, my worst sobriety, mm-hmm. where you feel every second of Totally, the totally. Um, you know, I think for people like us, and maybe everybody goes through that, I just know, like, when you're white knuckling, when shit's, when you're tingling, you don't mm-hmm. get to zone out for an hour. Like mm-hmm. you are hyper aware of every second and how yes. long the day is. Yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been both the weirdest and loveliest interview that I've ever totally done. On this lovely. I knew it was going to be weird, but I welcomed the weirdness and I, it's been great. I feel like we could just keep talking. It's awesome. Yeah, we could. And now people who are listening to this are like, well, they didn't cover any part of her life. And all I will tell you is <laughs> like, her, life was is that lady? <laughs> her, her life is covered in the book, right? Like yes. in, in yeah, uh, that is true. Yeah. And I mean, like we've always said, like, it's the character of you, like we don't get everything, yes. but 
you get, and so doing an interview that traced that book felt odd. Yeah, no, I think this was the way to go. I love yeah. that we just talked and we had lots to talk about. Yeah, and it's very rare that I get to talk to somebody. You know, I don't talk about myself or my issues, but I was like, oh, well, this one. Yeah, no, I'm so glad. And it's like, also, you're like doing rad work on yourself. You should feel great. You should yeah, talk and, about it. And I also think it's important for people to hear people that have gone through this stuff talking about both the good parts, the fucked up parts, how that stuff, yes. like, it's my version of a meeting. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Only it's this, not anonymous. This was one. Yeah. <laughs> I know we both put our names out there for this, but that's okay. Yeah, you Thank wrote a you. book about it, so... Yes, yeah. this was wonderful. Um, if you get back through Pittsburgh, like, please let me know. I will show you guys around and we'll go hiking and I'll show you some of the city because it's a great place to live. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Well, there you have it. That was Nina Renata Aaron, whose book, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, is out now. Hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we loved having it. It was obviously a very different kind of interview, but it was one of my most favorite. Before we get out of here, just a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors that we talked about at the top of the show. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes on Monday and Thursday, remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the Internet. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I am Kristen Russo. And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure, a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites. Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and rewatch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners. Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.